this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. You know, fortunes are made or lost not by what happens to us, but by how we react. Bad things happen to good businesses. Now it's up to you how you want to respond. A lot of owners right now are cutting expenses to the bone, just trying to survive. Some are being paralyzed with fear. A rare few are taking the opportunity to reevaluate their business. Now that the shock has settled in and we are now in the process of restarting, It's really a unique opportunity to rethink what it is you want to create, how valuable a company you have, how much it runs without you, and what you might do now, maybe give it a little bit of extra time to structure it so that it can be something that lives without you and ultimately is a sellable asset. It's exactly what we do at Value Builder. You can check out some resources at valuebuilder.com. There you'll get a questionnaire, which will allow you to look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. We can also connect you directly with a certified value builder, a trained expert in the value of companies and someone who can be your sounding board as you think about rebuilding. It's all available at valuebuilder.com. Man, there is a delicious little quote in this episode from Debbie King. She says, what I was doing as a service company operator was creating an original screenplay, like writing the movie Star Wars for every single one of my clients. Yet what I do now is simply sell tickets to my screenplay. I write one movie script and sell tickets along the way. What she was describing was the transformation of going from a custom consulting shop to a productized service offering. She talks about the difficulty of overcoming client objections, how to get employees to come along with you for the ride and making that transition, how it can affect cash flow and how to overcome those challenges. She talked about the way she ultimately sold the company, got multiple offers all along the way, building a company that could thrive without her, which she'll tell you about in great detail. Here to tell you the entire story is Debbie King. Debbie King, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. Yeah, no, it's great to chatting with you live. Tell me a little bit about the company you sold, Association Analytics. What, how did this come about? What's, what's the genesis of the idea? Well, you know, I was working for someone in a technical role. And like many entrepreneurs, I decided I could do it better myself. So I started my first business. And I also made another common mistake, which is I named it after myself. So DSK Solutions was what the initial name of the company was. And over the course of the first 10 years, I just really built it with hard work and willpower and grit hired people. It was a technical consulting company helping people use data analytics. And then when I realized that I wanted to truly scale it, I rebranded with the name Association Analytics, which is exactly what we did. Um, The business created Association Analytics for large trade and nonprofit associations. 
So if I was like a the Plumbers Association of America and I wanted to better understand my members, like who is likely to churn and what they were likely to extra to buy and who's going to come to the annual conference, I would hire you guys to do that analytics. Yes, that's right. We had a lot of large medical associations, for example, and it was all about understanding your customer's journey, which is familiar to all of us as entrepreneurs, but uh, associations also want to do that so that they can provide the best services. Aren't they cheap? Aren't associations super cheap? They're careful. <laughs> How do you get money out of associations? I've well, never been able to do it. I had, I had worked in an association, so I had an edge, right? So uh, okay. I had volunteered on a lot of users groups. I built up my reputation as someone who gave value and delivered when they said they would as a volunteer. And when I built my business, it was super easy for people to trust me. And so, you know, I did a lot of public speaking as well at the industry conferences for, um, a lot of big associations. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're cheap, but I think that they're careful and they're not all the same. There's professional societies like the, the CPAs, which, you know, I worked with. And then there's, you know, large, uh, like the American Institute of Architects or the 4As, the American Association of Advertising Agencies, these, these kinds of organizations. So, but the main thing is that data was the solution to understanding the story so that they could make better decisions. Excellent. Okay. That's helpful for me. So this business was in the early days, a classic sort of sell, do, kind of try to win the project and then send the invoice and I mean, describe that. Yeah, it was exhausting, right? Like the bigger we got, the harder it was because, you know, it was super complicated work because we were doing data analytics from multiple data sources, right? And this was back in the day when we were using SQL Server and hand coding stuff. And there was a lot of data cleansing that had to be done. And the business rules were all different, even within the organization, that people had different understandings of what their own business rules were. So it was fraught with peril. So basically what was happening is that I, my business was being sucked into the client's system. They weren't coming into my system. I was going into theirs. And it just started to be really unsatisfying because of all the reasons you can imagine. You're, you know, you're spending time writing proposals, some of which get accepted, some of which don't. Then if you win it, there's still all this complexity associated with do they understand even what it was that they bought in the proposal? And then um, the implementation phase turned into one of these ones where it was difficult to predict how long it would take because a lot of it was dependent on the client's understanding. And how do you estimate how fast a client is going to understand? So I could see all of the problems. I just did not know what the solution was. So I just kept hiring more people and throwing them into the mix and trying to scale with people, which is difficult. How many people did you have at this point? In we, we only got to 20 because I didn't want more than that. Um, and even that was difficult. Yeah. And so what changed? Well, if, if, if I tell you the truth, I read your book, Built to Sell. You know, I started to decide that I couldn't keep going the way I was going. My life was falling apart. The marriage was suffering. Um, and in fact, didn't even succeed, you know. So 
I was working all the time. I had joined EO by this point. So I started to, yeah. yeah, the entrepreneurs organization. So I started to realize through the, the forum and the, the groups that we would meet in that there was another way to run businesses, but I couldn't figure it out. And I thought to myself, well, I think I just need to hire somebody to run it for me because I'm so unhappy, right? So I tried over the course of three years to hire someone to run the business for me. And I think I went through five COOs. <laughs> and I know I'm embarrassed to admit it. I mean, the common denominator there is me. So part of the problem was I didn't really want to let go. Like I wanted someone to run it for me, but I wanted to tell them how to run it. And the person who's really good at taking something over doesn't want to be told what to do. So, um, so I tried that, and then at the end of that debacle, because of course that's a big deal, right? You have to introduce these people to your clients, and then when they leave, you feel bad. And so after that, I thought, well, I just need to sell it. I just need to sell this business because I can't take it another minute. It's so stressful. I'm working like 80, 90 hours a week. Yes, we were making money. We were profitable every single year. So for the whole 18 years that I owned my business, we were profitable. But at what cost? So I thought I need to sell it. And that, that was when one of the worst days of my life happened. And I realized I met with a broker, I think at, at some fancy club. And I realized I couldn't sell my business. It Why? Was, what, what, what did they point out? Wasn't, wasn't it was not sellable. sellable because it depended on me. I had to be there to oversee the projects and to make the decisions. It was not scalable because it was a series of large projects, but they were one-offs, each of them. And it, um, the target market was, that was a one thing I think I did well. Like we only worked with associations and anybody else that came to me, I turned that away. So the niche piece I got right but I didn't have the strategy right. I would do different kinds of things for the client. They would ask me, they would trust me, so they would wanna do more stuff, and I'd be like, oh yes, great, revenue is good. So I would take on more work, and then before I knew it, we couldn't specialize in any one thing because we were doing so many. We were doing predictive analytics, you know, we were doing, data warehousing, we were doing data visualization, we were doing GDPR, we were doing data cleansing, we were doing training, it was just a lot. And so you know what it really was? It was the equivalent of doing, creating, imagine creating a feature length film like Star Wars for every single client. And <laughs> it didn't make sense and I thought to myself, you know, the answer of course now I know is to sell tickets to my Star Wars creation. Oh, that's brilliant. I've never heard that before. I love that. That's cool. Create it once. Don't create Star Wars for every client. Sell tickets right. to Star Wars. I love that. Crazy. So, um, so what do you mean by, I mean, let's get, before we, I want to get into the sell tickets to Star Wars, I think that's brilliant. Before we do that though, I, I actually, I, I would like you to try to, as best you can articulate the, the emotions you felt when the broker or M&A professional said, 
your business was worthless. I, you know, there's nothing I can do here. But what was that emotionally for you? It was catastrophic. I, I don't even remember how long it took me to recover. Um, I mean, at least like a week of solid, like devastation in terms of, I truly felt trapped. I couldn't stay because I couldn't figure out a way out of all the pain associated with like putting out fires every single day and everybody wanted a piece of me and I hadn't, you know, I, you know, cash flow was a problem. We made a lot of money, but the way we were getting paid was a problem. So it was like every day, a series of problems. Like I remember one day driving to the office and like just having to pull over to the side of the road because waves of dread were, were just coursing through my body. And, and I thought I can't stay and I can't go because I mean, he said you can sell your business, but it would have been like not worth it, right? Like I wouldn't have been able to live on that. I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have even been enough really for me to create another business. So it wasn't an option in other words. So I couldn't stay and I couldn't go. And to an entrepreneur, as far as I'm concerned, that's the worst possible situation. You're completely hostage to your own trap that you created. And that actually is when I read your book. So I sort of put that out of order. I, I, I didn't find your book until I reached that crisis of meaning, that bottom of the barrel, what am I going to do to survive? So how did you apply the book? What'd you do? In fairness, at the same time that, cause I was, I think I was Googling, you know, how to sell my business, you know, cause uh, after I got over the initial, you know, um, shock that I couldn't sell it, I'm like, well, there has to be a way. Cause the person I met with just was like, well, you're not going to get what you want. But I'm like, well, what do I need to do to get what I want? And that's when I was Googling how to sell your business. And I found your book. And at the same time, I was in a coaching program at Georgetown to become a coach. Cause I'd always been interested in that. And my coach at Georgetown said to me, you will never be able to sell your business the way you feel about it now. You have to fall in love with your business on purpose first. Hmm. And she was so right because the energy of loving my business, which just means connection and appreciation, had to come in order for me to apply the steps in your book. So those two fortuitous things happened at the same time. I found your book and the coach said, you have to love your business. Cause she's like, if you don't love it, no one else will either. Not your clients, not your staff and not the market. Cause how did you fall back in love with your business? Cause it was in your own words, making you dread it. So how did you fall back in love with it? It's a mind game. You have to decide to, it's a mindset thing because what is a business? A business is a set of connections and I have this matrix, matrix tricks where I have like 12 connections that I see very clearly. There's you, there's your customers, there's your team, and there's your solution. So that's four. But if you draw the lines between all of those so that it's a two-way, it, it comes to like 12. Mm. So there's 12 places that you look for feeling connected and appreciation, right? So I had to appreciate my team instead of just looking at all the stuff that I saw that I thought was wrong. 
I had to appreciate my customers, like really intentionally feel connected to them. And, and if you don't feel, I would put to you, if you don't feel connected to your customers, you need to find new customers because that's really important. Like if you cannot find a way to feel connected to your customers, it's gonna permeate how you feel about your business. So I had to be connected and appreciate and want to be with my customers. And I had to feel the same way about my solutions. I had to feel connected and appreciate my solutions. I had to love what I was actually selling and I didn't. Who who wants to love doing one-offs? So when I realized that there was work to do on each of these connections, I had to look at myself and appreciate myself more instead of criticizing myself. And I had to appreciate each of these other four connections for a total of 12. So I intentionally set about doing the mindset work to look for the things because, you know, the primitive brain looks for things that it expects to see, what you tell it to look for. And if you don't give the primitive part of our brain a job to do, it's going to look for danger and risk, and it's going to be filtering on the negativity bias that kept us alive. To so I'm looking for what, what, what I appreciate about my business. What was the second thing? How am I connected to it? The connection. Can, okay. That's how I define love. Right. And because, you know, people you're getting all flaky on me. I know. love your business. <laughs> people say that they're like, what does love have to do with it? And right. I, I have a, you know, a technical consulting company. So like love is not the thing that I first thought of about my business, but it's really you have to want it. You have to want it. You have to appreciate it and you have to feel connected to it. I was so, disconnected. OK, so then so once you got connected and appreciated it, what were some of the tactical things you did to the solution. I love this example of don't create a new screenplay for every client, sell tickets. So what did you do practically to change your business model? Well, and again, I have to give credit to your book. So um, the things that I took from your book, because there was a lot there, but built to sell really, um, it was so easy to read, but there was so much good value in it was this idea of even narrowing my niche further. So I had this niche of just the association market, but I narrowed it down even further so that I looked at which of the types of clients that I had, which of the types of associations were the best fit for us. So I spent a lot of time on getting clarity on that and turning away work. Now, a lot of people aren't willing to do that. There was a place I turned down a million dollar implementation for a client because they didn't fit my model. I had to put my money where my mouth is. Like I had to really believe in myself. What was your definition of your, your niching down? Like what kind of associations did you decide to work with? Who, who was in your strike zone? Well, you know, it was really more about the revenue size of the association. I see. Okay. And also what did they want us to do for them? Because by this time I had started to do the second step which is to turn my services into solutions that I marketed as products. So anytime, and we had some very large associations that I won't mention that would, would offer us tons of money to come in and just basically do what they told us to do. And that turned out to not fit, right? Because I couldn't scale that. I couldn't turn that into our solution that we then marketed as a product and eventually turned into a platform 
So I took a technical consulting company doing, granted, a good business, a profitable business, but doing a series of one-off, complicated work, and I systematized it for my niche and then put it on a platform on AWS and built a front end to it and then started charging for it monthly. And of course, that was another strategy that you had talked about to generate recurring revenue in advance. And so that's what we did. Okay. So, so let me get underneath this. So just so the acronym may not be familiar to everybody, AWS, Amazon Web Services. So you, you hosted this you created a, 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 an analytics tool, it sounds like. That a platform, you put on really. It cloud, was a data a warehouse. It was a data warehouse that had data visualization on top of it, along with a predictive engine. So you took the association's data sets and you sucked it into this platform. And then based on this dashboarding software that you had on top, they could see the trends and all sorts of different things. Was the, 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 the layer of analytics, the dashboard, was that proprietary? Did you develop that or did you use a third party? It's dashboard? interesting. That was a place where we could have made a big misstep. Uh, at one point I was really enamored with Tableau because when they were one of the, early, I don't know what Tableau is. Is that a, an they were an early or? player in the data visualization space. And okay. you call it data visualization. Argue. Yeah. The, the, because in the end of the day, what I figured out, my clients don't care or they didn't care so much about the data warehouse, which was the hardest part. They cared about what they could see, um, mm. which was the, the visuals, right? The pretty pictures, the, you know, the lines going up and to the right. Okay, got it. So because data visualization. Yeah. So, so, but, you know, when I at first was trying to embed a third party solution into mine, um, one like that, uh, it had some risk associated with it. And I think you talk about that too. Don't be dependent on anyone's supplier. And in my world, that translated into any one third-party tool, right? Because mm -hmm. then there could, and there were, they were subsequently acquired not too long ago by Salesforce. So um, I'm glad that, you know, the business didn't, didn't have that dependency. So then we, we moved uh, to a, a broader base, a more ubiquitous type. But I didn't try to reinvent the wheel either and recreate what the R&D for that is literally hundreds of millions of dollars to create a visualization tool. Okay, so you, you looked at Tableau but chose not to go with Tableau. Who did you go with to make that we visualization? We used Tableau actually for two years until I oh, realized okay. once I started to build the product that that was not going to end up being our solution. And then we went to uh, Microsoft BI, Power BI. BI. Okay. I, I'm not familiar with that, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. So you move, you go from squishy projects, selling the screenplay, making the screenplay for every client to this hosted application. What was the toughest part about, because as a, as a service provider, you know, you're, you're taught to listen to the client needs, understand the implications of those and, and prepare a custom solution. You're not necessarily taught, uh, at least in, I think in my experience, sort of systems thinking that would allow you the, the way to build a, a software product, which it sounds like you actually created. What was the toughest part of it, making that tr transition from client project to systems thinking? 
I, it sort of, I, I don't know, it sort of felt natural to me. I mean, the pain mm. of doing the individual projects was so much larger than the interest that I had in making a system. So mm -hmm. for me, it was a easy decision to make. Did you run into clients who were saying, Debbie, like, I don't, if, you know, if my competitor has your solution, I don't want the same cookie cutter solution. So, you know, no, thank you. Yeah. You know, I did have some clients that would say, um, we don't want your solution. And, you know, I was fine with that because there were so many that did, and it was clearly such a better solution for them. The problem One. is this is like, I always try to pretend I am the other person in any negotiation or any kind of a situation. So it's like, if I was the client, what would I want? Well, I wouldn't want some custom solution that was difficult to maintain that there was only one in the world of that that required these hero you know programmers to jerry rig you know i i wouldn't want that and so it was my job then as the owner to come up with the marketing to explain to the customers that it was in their best interest to be part of an ecosystem a solution that would scale and that would be maintained and that would be updated on a regular basis got it how did you charge you said you charge monthly on a subscription basis yeah, we, we had to move from, in the old days, we would take these large projects and like many organizations, we would take a, a down payment, you know, like a 30% down payment. And then we would get a progress payment maybe halfway through. And then the bulk of it, not the, well, like 30% would be due upon acceptance. So there was also this delay between final delivery and acceptance and that, that didn't work well because you know you've done your work you've paid mm. your people and you're waiting for them to accept it and they may or may not even understand what they're accepting and so they delay and people take vacations and this would contribute to the cash flow problem <laughs> so um i was highly motivated to fix that so i think a lot of what i did was motivated from the alternative was uber painful mm -hmm. and so, so how did you charge so we took a hit in the first year in terms of our, we still made a profit, but in terms of the reduction in the amount of money that we received, because we basically took what it would cost over, say, three years and divided that out monthly. I mean, it wasn't a super sophisticated thing, I have to tell you, John. I mean, we were I didn't have anybody consulting with me telling me how to do this. I was mm -hmm. in true entrepreneurial fashion, trying to figure it out. Uh, so I just took the amount that I thought the system in three years would pay for itself and divided that out monthly. And that became the amount. It was a little tricky with the AWS because some of that was based on how much it was used mm. and we couldn't predict that. So I had to take some risk, but it paid off. It was worth it. Um, and then it was appealing to the clients because their initial costs were lower and, mm -hmm. and, you know, it became a lower monthly cost than trying to come up with, you know, a large chunk of what change. What would a typical, in the old world, when the project world, what would a typical engagement have costed uh, an association if they'd hired you? 
It would depend because I was taking all different types of things. It could be anywhere okay. from 50 to 500,000. And then what were they paying monthly using the product? And it, in the beginning, it varied, you know, because I was basing it on what, how much I thought they were going to use it. Mm-hmm. So I am trying to remember now what I was charging. I, th- I think it was maybe 4000 a month, four or five. Got it. Yeah. So you're recovering in a year, sort of the typical project value of 50 grand in a year. But if they stay three years, it's more like you're capturing 150 grand. <laughs> Got it. Okay. What was the reaction among your employees when you rocked up with this new book and said, hey, we're going to change everything? <laughs> Everybody thought I was crazy. I mean, I had a lot of that. <laughs> you know, they, they liked doing what they were doing. That's why they were there. So the idea of, I mean, the, you know, the R&D expert, you know, my head guy, he loved the idea because he thought it would be fun to build a product. But all the rest of the people were like, how does that relate to us? Because the types of people you need does change. Instead of doing the feature length film for every client where you need all these superstars, instead, we only needed, you know, to build the product and then have salespeople and then have people who could handle training and, you know, customer relations. So that, that was not, um, everybody didn't see the vision as much as I did. And that happens, of course, but it's, it was a win for the customer, I think, to be on a platform. It was certainly a win for us because we could scale. And so it was just a decision that I made that that was the direction we were moving in. How many of your employees made the switch? Like you said, you had 20 and after you made the switch, how many were left? Oh, you know, I, I would, it would be hard pressed to, to pin it on any one thing though, because I also at the same time got super clear on my vision. You know, I did this whole painted picture thing you may have done with Cameron Harold and uh, the vivid vision and all of this. And so once I got super clear on the vision I had for the company and rolled it out, people self-selected out if they didn't fit the vision, which was great because those people, it's like, imagine, you know, you're in a rowboat and you've got a couple people rowing their oar in the opposite direction because they actually Mm -hmm. don't want to go where you're going. So until you make it super clear to everyone where you're going in language they can understand, you don't even know they're rowing backwards. So that, that was kind of a big aha. So it wasn't just that the people didn't want to, um, maybe, you know, I didn't have a need for what they did. It was also that they didn't all want to be part of this kind of a company because people have their own ideas of what that means. There were some competitors in our space that were operating in a way that didn't want us to be like that. And they thought we might be so. What was the, the mood around the company in those, just around those days where you launched the vision, you knew you had a, a couple of people that were perhaps not on board. What was the, kind of culture like and the mood in, in the company in those, in those first few weeks? It was tough. It was tough. Uh, you know, all I can say is that there was doubt uh, on their part. And so I had to, again, I had to rely on my own 
a determination and conviction that this was going to work to hold it together. And what gave you that conviction? Because I think a lot of people are listening to this going, like, I know in theory, I need to productize, et you know, but, but once they get into it, once a client says, no, I want you to do the custom solution or an employee says, I didn't sign up to be the McDonald's of fill in the blank industry, they get cold feet and they, and they kind of get, they don't have the confidence to f- follow through. What gave you the confidence to continue to follow through? Because I had figured out that this wasn't sustainable. I mean, it, it didn't scale. It was painful. I was paying the price and I couldn't sell it. I wasn't building an asset. I had an ATM. And so I had money. It was funding my lifestyle. The business was doing well, but it wasn't something anybody else would ever want to buy without me staying. And that would be the last thing. I, if I got one thing out of your book, it was that I did not want an earnout. And um, most entrepreneurs, you know, you don't want someone else telling you in your own company what to do. And to be so, called, go ahead. You know, I was, I was, I was going to ask you, uh, let's get into the actual sale. So um, you made these changes and presumably it, it impacted. I mean, can you describe the before and after, like the, you know, before the, the diet, after the diet, I'm trying to think of like before the home is renovated and after the home is beautiful and perfect. Like what was the, what was the, the, the after picture? Well, you know, I had this thing and I think I got it from Tucker Max and he said, you know, what's this problem a solution to? So I would, I would look at what is the current problem I have a solution to. And so like the overruns we were having on projects were because we were trying to keep customers happy, right? The large accounts receivable that we used to have was because we were trying to avoid asking for money up front. We didn't want to bill up front. The problem of not having any time to myself was trying to do everything by myself, right? Not having sufficient cash reserves was because I didn't want to track all the financials and KPIs, Um, you know, clients changing their requirements midstream was because I wanted to get the deal. So I didn't manage expectations. So once I got this lens of looking at the world, what, why is this problem existing? It's a solution to something else, whether it's something I want to avoid or not, that really opened my eyes. So what was your question again? I was just wondering about the financial implication of making this change to a subscription model. Like, did it, did your revenue go up or down? Did your profitability go up or down? Did your cash flow go up or down? Like that sort of stuff. Cash flow went down the first year. um, And revenue went down, but we still made a profit. So how much did revenue go down on like on a percentage basis? I don't, I'm sorry, John. I don't really have that number. I don't know. That's fine. That's fine. Um, and it, then, and then after a few years, did, did it recover or did it remain down? Yes, what was the, yes. Yeah. Far exceeded. Um, so it was totally worth it. And it, I mean, it, it, it only took a year really for us to recover the amount that we had lost in terms of cash flow. And then by this time, you know, clients were signing three-year contracts. So we had three-year contracts predicting much further out. And this increases the value of your firm a lot. Mm-hmm. Speaking of value, what did you think it was going to be worth? 
Um, obviously, the broker who you had lunch with in the beginning said it was largely worthless. Uh, by the time you'd made these changes, did you have a sense of what it could be worth on either a multiple of revenue or multiple of profitability? Like, do you have a range that you were sort of hoping to get? Yeah, I was looking for like seven X EBITDA um, for me, but you know, a true SaaS solution, software as a service solution, could generate more like ten to fifteen. Where did you get the seven times EBITDA number? Like why, why that number? Like who, who told you that? How did you kind of get that number? I don't know if it was in your book or hmm. where I got that number from, but I got fixated on that number and okay. it felt like a number where I wouldn't have to work again ever. We like that. <laughs> um, and, and what was the trigger to actually sell? Because after you'd made these changes, it sounds like the business had improved your lifestyle had improved. Why sell? Yeah, I didn't have to sell at that point. Um, however, you know, at, you reach a certain age, you know, for me, you know, once it was time to start thinking about what else did I want to do with my life? I'd spent 18 years in this business and I really enjoyed, you know, working with entrepreneurs. So I think what happened to me is that the the shift from the customer that I was serving, the association space that I had grown up in and that I had served for 18 years, I loved them, but I, I wanted to spend more of my time working with entrepreneurs and start another business actually. So hmm. that, that was why it worked for me, but I didn't have to sell it. I could have kept it and you know, the business is doing really well now. Um, triple the size of what it was when I sold it. Wow. So, so tell me about the sale. What, what was that process like? Did you, did you hire an advisor? Did you like, what was the, what was that? Yeah, process? I can't talk too much about the details of the sale. Um, but I will say that I did have a, um, I had a, a business broker an M and a, uh, team and I had my CPA and I had my lawyer. So I had the three, the triumvirate of advisors working mm -hmm. with me and I would say that getting the accountant involved early is what I would do differently, getting them involved even sooner because we had some deferred revenue uh, and some, some challenges with how to classify um, revenue that just made it a little difficult, um, more, harder than it had to be if I had dealt with that sooner. Um, so I found the process somewhat stressful, I have to say. Um, you know, you, it's your baby. You, you know, nobody wants to hear you have an ugly baby. But mm -hmm. when you go through due diligence, of course, that's what they're doing. They're looking for how ugly is it. Yeah. And so you, you got, I understand, multiple offers. Of, uh, you allowed to share how many offers you, you got? Yeah, I had um, more than two. I'll just say that and okay. letters of intent, and um, and that felt great, right? I was super excited about that. But I will say that, um, and this was in your book too, so that's why I'm so glad I read. It. I, I keep going back to that because it really saved me a lot of drama. If I hadn't read that book, I would have thought things were going to happen differently than they did. But because I read your book, I was prepared for the fact that the LOA or the LOI really doesn't mean anything. I mean, it means something, but the actual end offer that you get is, is not the same as what's in the LOI. And um, so that was a, that was good for me. I didn't, I didn't get attached to it, you know? And, um, 
And there was how a much lot was it less than the original LOI? Like how much did it drop on a percentage basis? Oh, I, I don't think I've ever thought about that. Maybe 5%, but still 5%, okay. right? You know, yep. <laughs> you get attached when you see the number and, and it doesn't, and then it's different. So, um, but you know, this is where the mindset thing comes in to it. You know, if you can put yourself in the other person's shoes, of course, they want to take into account all of the risk that they might be taking on and they want sure. to compensate for that by um, lowering their investment. So when you got these offers, like how did you evaluate each one? Like as you read them, what were the pros and cons of each essentially? Well, it was really important to me that my clients continue to be served well. I mean, I had this 18 year reputation as the leader in our space and I didn't want to walk away from that with people going, yeah, you know, this, this thing really tanked and, and, you know, she left us in a lurch and all that. So that was super important is like, how were they going to run the business? Were they going to, of course, the amount that I was going to get was very high on the list of priorities too, but, sure. but right up next to that was, you know, were they going to like subsume it into some other business and then gradually, you know, transition my solution away. I didn't want that. Um, and my staff, you know, what was going to happen with them? How were they going to be treated? So there was, there were multiple considerations. How much, how big a range was there? Again, I know we can't talk about the number, but in terms of the, the range, like was uh, how, from the low to the high offer, like roughly what kind of range are we talking about? Are they kind of in the same ballpark or they were different? kind of, they were all actually kind of in the same ballpark and they didn't have to be like my business broker wanted to go out and do a, I forget the name she had for it, but she, or the M&A like auction, some, some yeah, sort of auction. The M&A yeah. advisor wanted to go out and really package it and white label mm -hmm. it and position. I didn't want any of that. So mm, why not? I, I was worried and I'm not sure whether it was a reasonable worry or not, but I didn't want people in my space to know that I might sell the business because, you know, mm -hmm. we still had deals on the table. Um, I didn't want, it was awkward, right? You're running the business while selling it. It's like building the plane while flying it. Um, mm -hmm. You don't want people, you know, nobody would get on your plane if they knew that you were building it. Changing the, the engines in the air. Yeah. <laughs> so you're worried about that. So how did you get three offers then if you didn't kind of market it widely or multiple offers, whatever, more than two? I think it's just, the space, you know, I knew the space really well. I've been in it 18 years. So I knew which players our solution would be a strategic acquisition for. I knew that. So I went to my M&A people with that. You know, I created the list of who I thought if I were them, we would make a good acquisition. Um, and how long was that list, Debbie? Like how many names? 10. 10. You know, I could have made more, but I have to tell you, the number one thing that I, you know, for the listeners out there, don't take your eye off the ball. While you're in the process of selling your business, man, you, it's like two jobs. Like you were already busy, like building your business. And now you've got this whole other job of trying to figure out how to package it, you know, doing your pitch deck, figuring out what you want, doing your due diligence. Who do you tell on your team? Not letting the market know till you're ready. So, You've got these two things going on and it can be really easy 
to take your eye off the ball of running the business and you're that that is good advice you gave too is the, and that's that's a death knell really because you can't tell which of the offers you get is going to be the one you finally accept if any and if in the meantime your business has decreased in value you could be left back in the situation you were when you started so which offer did you take and and why I ended up taking an offer from one of my staff who was the leader, my right-hand person, the CFO. She was super excited. She, younger than me, had a clear vision of where the business could go, saw the opportunity, was just really a younger version of me. And had she I saw, seen the other offers? Like how the other offers had come in. Had she seen those? She, see, she saw those because she was your right-hand person. Right. So she's helping me put together the pitch deck. And she's like, I think probably in the process of putting together the pitch deck and the size of the market, when we did the all the stuff you do during, you know, packaging your business, the opportunity became so much more clear to hmm. both of us. Um, and she was like, yeah, I, I want to buy this business. And I'm like thinking to myself, well, I don't know if you can, um, because it's a, you know, it's a hefty thing to do, but she put it together. Um, she came up with it. And so I guess you'd call it a management buyout. And why I liked that idea was that it brought continuity. Um, there was, you know, consistency for my clients, consistency for my team. It was a little bit less due diligence because she already knew everything, although there still was due diligence. Um, and it really worked out well. And it, it felt good because I could have probably picked any of the offers. But for me, this was this was the best fit for me. And oftentimes you have to take less when it's a management bio, like you have to take substantially less. Did you feel like you, you took a discount, if you will, by yeah. taking it? No. How'd she come up with the money? She was able to get a loan. Um, she had her own money and, and she, you know, had a loan from the SBA, I think. And um, anyway, I don't, I don't want to go into the... Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> What's that like to be, that must be difficult because on one hand, you're running a company together. On the other hand, she's a little bit motivated, whether she did this or not, I don't know, but to kind of depress the results during due diligence so she could get a bit of a better deal. Same time, she's got a job to do. Like, isn't she conflicted during that whole time? Like, how did you stick out all that? Yeah, I think it must have been difficult for her. Um, for me, you know, I was really trying to stay focused on the end goal, what I really wanted at the end. And was it, and this is one of the things that my M&A advisor asked me, is like, what do you, what's most important to you? You know, do you really want this to happen? Or are you going to draw it out for a long time for a lot of different reasons? Uh, I didn't want to have to stay afterward for a long time. I wanted to start my next venture and do some traveling. So this, that, having her as, as the owner meant a lot less time that I was going to have to spend uh, yeah, afterwards. Sure. So that was uh, worth a lot to me. Did and, you still have to pay the broker, even though oh, yeah. she was kind of working for you? Totally. Totally had to pay the broker. Well, I, I mean, he or she did their job, right? They brought offers to the table. It got so. done. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, what did you buy yourself as a trophy? I mean, did you, did you buy a fancy car? Did you, I don't know. 
Well, I already had Ebola, so I, I, we definitely traveled. We spent about a year traveling around the world afterwards. Oh, exciting. Where'd you go? What was your favorite spot? Oh, I don't know. So many. I mean, you know, Australia is great. We did the whole Machu Picchu thing. We spent months and months in Europe and I love Morocco. We went twice there. And so it was just South Africa, lots of, lots of things. I'm not sure what my favorite was. Each place has its own. I'm glad I got that travel in before uh, everything happened with coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But you had some time to think about a book. So tell me about this new book, Loving Your Business. Um, I'm assuming it's inspired by what you were taught by that Georgetown professor about falling back in love with your company. Yeah, well, I really think that, you know, instead of building a business, most entrepreneurs build a trap. And then once they're in the trap, they can't figure out how to get out of it. And so what I'm saying is like when you've already run a marathon, somebody asking you to run a sprint is kind of tough. And in order to do that, you have to work on your mindset. You have to decide what you're going to make it mean. So for me, the idea of loving your business is all about the relationship you have with your business. Is your business a ball and chain? Do you feel hostage to it or do you appreciate it? Are there things about it you love? And it's really just a matter of what you decide to focus on. Because again, the brain is gonna present you with more evidence for whatever it is you believe. So if you believe that it's a problem, you're gonna be seeing problems. But if so, you, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, so this gets back to the idea we were talking about earlier about the process you went through to feel more connected to the people, the suppliers, the employees, the customers, and also more appreciative of all those things. Can you give me one super tactical, actionable thing that I could do right now to feel more connected to those constituencies? Give me a practical tool I could, I could use or something I could do right now. Well, what I do is this thing called the model. And so you simply identify either how you're thinking, what are your thoughts about all of these connections? What are your so thoughts? So my employees about- are frustrating me. They're driving me crazy. They keep asking for a raise. They never get any yes. work done. They're driving me nuts. Right. So if you're having thoughts like that, John, how do you feel? I feel uh, actually truth be told, I really love my employees, but I'll, I'll go along with you. Um, uh, I feel uh, taken advantage of. I feel like I'm getting ripped off. I feel angry and resentful. Right. Yeah. And when you feel that way because of how you're thinking, what actions are you likely to take? I'm going to send them a nasty email. I'm going to tell them I'm going to book a meeting at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. You know, or you're going to avoid them. Some people are like, I just don't want to talk to my staff, right? And then they get frustrated when they don't do it right, but they didn't want to talk to them. So what what I think is the most actionable thing we can do as leaders is to understand that the thoughts we have affect how we feel. And that's not some woo-woo thing, how we feel. How we feel is the fuel for the action we take. And as business owners, we're taking action all the time. We're making decisions, we're, we're, we're taking action. And if the action we're taking is coming from feelings of frustration, um, blame, resentment, irritation, anger, any negative feeling, 
then the result isn't going to be what we want. The result always comes from the action. The action is fueled by the feeling, and the feeling is created by the thoughts. But how do I change my thought process? Because right now I'm mad as hell at my employees. I'm frustrated. So I hear you that I got to be more appreciative and more connected. But how do I do that? You realize that those thoughts are simply not going to get you the result that you want. Like focusing on, well, it's true that they, you know, my best employee quit and this person made a mistake and that we didn't get that contract. Like focusing on those thoughts and having negative feelings about them, those things are not going to get you the result you want. They're going to make you tired. They're going to make you exhausted. They're going to make you not have the energy that you need to create the future. And that's what entrepreneurs do. We create the future. And so the energy that we use to create the future affects how the future looks to us. When I was frustrated, which is my number one emotion, frankly, that I work on because I'm always in a hurry, the results that I always got were I was tired and exhausted. I would get what I wanted but I'd be tired and exhausted and resentful. And it was because I was coming from an energy of frustration. So to change your thoughts, you decide, is this true? Like, is there another way to think about this? Like, would everybody on the planet agree that this person is X, this thought you have? And the chances are no. The chances are your thought is optional. You could choose to have a different thought just because you decide to. You don't, it doesn't have to be, anyway, does the thought serve me? That's what I ask myself. Does it serve me to be this way? It reminds me a little bit of, of a gratitude practice where it's like you wake up grumpy in the morning and you're like, I don't want to feel grateful for anything. It's like ran out of milk, no coffee, whatever. But then if you force yourself to think one thing you're grateful for, well, the sun's shining. Okay, great. And then you get on this roll and before too long, you got 10 things in your gratitude list and you're totally out of that. Love it. Uh, Debbie, where can people buy the book called Loving Your Business? Well, it'll be on Amazon uh, opening in October. And so for now, also people can find out a lot more about it on lovingyourbusiness.com. Love it. No pun intended. It was great to chat with you. Please uh, keep in touch. Good luck with the book, Loving Your Business dot com or on Amazon. Thanks, okay. Debbie. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.